going to talk about the gospel and really just kind of the effects of the gospel and, and really just kind of tie all of this, the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ uh, within all of this. And I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2. I've, I've probably pre- preached from this millions of times because this is my favorite uh, book. This is my favorite chapter in Ephesians because um, it is a, a just kind of a, a wide shot view of the gospel and the power of the gospel. Now let's, let's ask a few questions, address a few things, and so that we're all under the proper working uh, definitions of some things. So what is the gospel? First of all, uh, the gospel is good news. We know that, right? It is good news. It is from the Greek word or the Latin word euangelion, which is where we get messenger. You hear the angelion as the angel or the messenger. And so this is really a, um, a secular term that was, wasn't really new to the Christian church, um, the euangelion, the, the messengers would take a message uh, in the Roman Empire and they would take this message that the kingdom is intact Anytime that there was uh, an emperor or a power change, there would be the messenger that would roam the streets, that would roam to the different towns and to the different uh, areas and regions with a message of the king is, is, is still on the throne, uh, everything is still good. Now, Jesus inserts himself and he, he takes that, ver- that, that language right out of their mouths and he says, I've got the gospel of the good news, I've got the gospel of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus and what he is doing here is saying that the ushering in of the new king is here. And the new king does not, is not elected by anybody. His rule and his reign starts right now, and that is King Jesus. And so that's what this gospel message is. And we know that it is good news because Anything that makes something good, that means that there has been something bad attached to it. And you've probably, you've heard me say this many a times. It's good news because there was something bad that was keeping us from receiving or entering into a right relationship with God. So this, this inserts kind of a, a, a narrative of the gospel. And, and the importance of the gospel. And so we, we insert the crucifixion of Christ right here because the crucifixion is going to address the severity of our need. It's going to address the bad news. And so Christ is going to have to endure suffering via a criminal cross, right? We, we know this, right? And, and this isn't something that was just kind of uh, some brand new idea that, you know, God up in the heaven is just writing the story as he goes. No, this has been just kind of uh, waiting out. And, and we've seen hints of this throughout the Old Testament, that there had to be some kind of blood substitute that could atone for our sins, Or in other words, if the word atone doesn't mean much to you, in other words, that can make us right before God. So the Old Testament is going to introduce to us a way, a means for us to, I guess we could say to temporarily make us right before God, which was the blood sacrifice. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. When, when Adam and Eve, they fall into sin and they in their own goodness and deeds try to hide themselves or try to hide their shame with fig leaves. And God's like, that's not enough. I'm going to put the skin garments over you. And so immediately we see that in the beginning, what is going to kind of flesh its way out throughout the Old Testament is a blood sacrifice. 
Now, uh, if you came to church uh, ready to talk about blood, like somebody's like so giddy about this, right? I mean, ooh, blood, this sounds really good, right? But this is why we needed the crucifixion of Christ because we needed a perfect lamb to take our place. And so the gospel is good news because what was bad was our sin nature. What was bad is our sin that is keeping us from being made right before holy and a just God. Therefore, what we needed was someone who was a perfect sacrifice to take our place. And so then we get the crucifixion of Jesus. And if and and let me just let me just let me just address this just in passing if I can. What the crucifixion of Christ, what it shows us and what it reveals to us is God's hatred towards sin. Now, I know that's not like a really popular message to preach at a church, you know, because we want to be inclusive and, you know, we want to accept everybody. But, but please, please, please hear me. The crucifixion of Christ hanging on the tree, blood spilling out of his body, body broken what, what that is a display of is God's utter disdain and hatred for sin. And I, here's my fear, that some of us just don't take sin seriously, right? Like, I just, I just had this, like, even inside of my own heart, you know, well, I just dislike this one person. Well, what you mean is you hate that person. And what Jesus would say is that if you have hatred in your heart, that's the same thing as murdering, but God takes sin so seriously. And if anything of the crucifixion should be assigned to us is that his hatred of sin and what it should tell us is also how much we also ought to hate sin. That is not just something we play around in and we just fiddle around with. No, sin is to be taken seriously. And so Christ is crucified, right? On Friday, and there's so much symbolism, but that I don't have time to get into. Christ's crucifixion right at, uh, like right at during Passover, Christ becomes that blood, that, that the death, it, it, and it's just so much symbolism. And then on Saturday is, is the Jewish holiday of the Sabbath. So, so immediately what we have on Saturday is Jesus Sabbathing right, from the work of the cross of Christ. It's, it's just so much beautiful symbolism, but, but thankfully the story doesn't end there. And then we get what we celebrate today from Christian history is the resurrection, this historical pivotal point in our faith that the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ is what makes our faith so profound, it is the, like the epicenter moment in our faith. It is the crucifixion, which is that good news that Christ took our place, that he saved us from our sin and our shame, and it is that resurrection. And that because he was raised from the dead, we too can be raised to life with him. Now, what does this have to do with Ephesians chapter 2? I don't know yet, but I hope I can figure it out while I read this. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Let's just read four verses, and we'll pause for just a second and talk about it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler and the powers of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient 
We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were, get, catch this now because like we don't want to talk about this, by nature, children under wrath as the others were also. And it, let me just summarize this. I told you four verses. I lied, just three verses. Let me just summarize this for you. Like, like this is, what this is, and you've heard me say this before, a universal indictment on humanity. This is not a universal indictment on the people who have wronged you. This is a display of who you are outside of Christ, right? This is you being dead in your sins. And, 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 I, and I just have to point this out because so many times in our culture, what culture wants you to believe is that you're not the problem. And you know what? We're idiots and we believe it. Like we're just dumbos and we're like, oh, I'm not the problem. They've wronged me. And we just buy into this whole lie that you've been wronged your whole life, that it's your spouse's fault. It's your children's fault. Now that part's true, but it's, it's always someone else's fault. You're never the problem. And I love this because Paul identifies to us and would speak directly to a church in 2023 and tell us, listen, outside of Christ, you are your worst enemy. And the problem is you are filled with sin. It's this, I need you to realize your true nature. Because if you can't realize who you are outside of Christ, then the magnificence of Christ and his nature will not sustain you. And it will have no significance to you. So, so in, other words, in other words, if I can't see my sin... And if I can't see me for who I really am outside of Christ, then the beauty of Christ will mean nothing to me. And until I can see that I have been dead in my sin and my shame and outside of Christ, what Colossians would say, and this is just not easy to take in for us on this fine Resurrection Sunday, but what Colossians would say is that you are alienated, and Romans would say you are an enemy of God outside of Christ. Paul wants you to see, you've got to see yourself for who you really are just so you could see the beauty of what Christ did for us on the cross. It's this sin. Sin is just an outward action. It's also an inward essence. It's our state. It is the great dilemma that we were all born into. According to Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the whole world. And because of that, death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. That's why David the psalmist would say in, in the Psalms is that, that from the moment of conception, I was born into this sinful nature. And I, you know, I, I, I joke in this quite often, but it's the truth. If you don't believe that you are by nature in sin, then number one, you don't believe the Bible. And number two, you haven't had children. Because those little jokers are not cute and, you know, obedient. And they're not like coming out of the womb ready to obey mommy and daddy. No, they're sinners. You... You've got to feed them. They're selfish. You've got to change them. You've got to do this. You've got to wake up when they cry out to you in the morning. 
You've got to pay for their lunch. You've got to do this. You've got to, and then they'll back talk you about it. And then they grow mouths and that's the evidence of the sin nature right there. They talk back, they say, no, 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 but I want to do this, but this is my way. All of that right there is evidence that Romans 5 chapter 12, Romans chapter 5 verse 12 is the truth. You and your sin nature. And so you have to see yourself for who you really are before you can see the beauty of the resurrection of Christ, before you can see the beauty of Christ there on the cross. Because none of this other stuff will make sense until you see this reality of our sin and who we are outside of Christ. I, I love this verse too, in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world. Like, here's this comparing and contrasting. You've been living according to the standards of the world in, instead of according to the standards of what, Bible, of what God says is true. And, and your standard is the standard of sin. It's the standard of the world. And, and so here's why this is uh, good news. So that when you see Christ and, and when you see yourself for who you really are, when Christ saves you, that is something that happens in that moment. It's not, you are saved. When you confess, when you believe in your heart that Christ died on the cross and he was raised from the dead, like at that moment, Christ seals you and you have been saved. And so what we would call this is this past, um, a past working of salvation. That's the moment you've been saved. And then what Paul is going to do in this, in this, in verse number four, is explore this kind of present reality of our salvation. And then he'll get to a future reality also of our salvation. Look at verse number four, because this is kind of that resurrection part of the gospel, what Christ saves us into this present reality of salvation. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you have been saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of us before time. I love this, but God, there is this reality of who we are outside of Christ. But at that moment that Christ saves us, at the moment that, that the spirit of God regenerate, Stephen, don't be pinching your baby, all right? I didn't take that literally when I was talking about your baby being sinful. Um, it, it, so, and so, so what we see is that Christ saving us from our sin, and then what Paul just outlined to us is this present reality of our salvation. Now, let me just stop and talk about this for just a second. Because what we find is that this just, and like I said earlier, this just isn't something brand new that like God just cooked up all of a sudden. It's like, you know what? I think, I think today's a good day that we're going to sacrifice Jesus. Like this wasn't just something that he just cooked up, that he just had this idea, like Holy Spirit, Jesus this is what we're going to do. This is the plan all along. And, and what we see is we see prophetic utterances of this 
throughout the Old Testament. I mean, right there in Genesis 3, if, and, I, and I just go back to that because I was just talking about it. When, when God clothes a man, like there's this, uh, this euangelion message in the garden, but you will crush the head of the serpent. And he will crush his heel. I mean, this is symbolism of Christ. And so we get prophecy throughout the Old Testament that's pointing us to, in this act one of the Bible, that there is a Messiah who's going to come. And he is going to be the perfect spotless lamb. And he is going to take away the sins of the world. And then at the moment of the cross of Christ, that, that when the justice of God is satisfied, Jesus will say it is finished. And at that moment, it makes a way for us to have that divine access back to God. And so, but God, who's rich in mercy, he saves us. In this moment, he saves us because of his great love that he had for us. He made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses, we have been saved by grace. I love this because it's the force of what Christ does for us, that God, Christ, raises us from the dead. It is just what he did on the resurrection Sunday morning when he got up out of the grave. He does that work right in us also. When he calls us by name, when he gives us the faith to believe in him, he raises us from death to life. Now, I love this imagery of, of deadness. Right? Maybe a little morbid of me, but I, just follow along for me just a second. You've been around the reality of death. I've been around the reality of death, and, and in the moment that the person takes their last breath, if you try to talk to them, if you, if you try to wake them, if you try to tell them, listen, you got to stop being dead, like they're, they're not going to respond. And the, the only person they'll respond to is the spiritual awakening that they'll get when Christ calls them home and resurrects their body. And Paul uses this imagery to us in telling us that nobody, no dead person can respond to an invitation that's given to them. So he is stripping down this works-based theology that some of us think that we have so much to do with our salvation. And in reality, you have nothing to do with your salvation because you're dead in your sins. And because you're dead in your sins, you cannot respond to an invitation that's being given to you unless the Spirit of God breathes life into you, giving you that gift of faith to believe. And so the reality of it is, is that you are dead in your sins. And there is nothing you can do. And Paul is emphatic about this. Like it, there's nothing lest you boast in your own works, which you cannot do. And here's a man who can probably do that better than any of us. But he says, listen, even my works, nothing, nothing that I can do can add to the work of salvation that the Spirit is regenerating my life and giving me the faith to believe in him. No, I cannot add anything to that. It is only so that we can say not how good we are, but look how good Christ our King is. That is the only reason why this is the case. Because the moment you start to say, you know, well, you know, I was a great person and, you know, I had a good family and I, I kept my spouse in check and no one ever said that. And I kept my kids in check, you know. And, and the moment you just start saying that it was all because of these things that I did, 
Like you, you've just, you, you have crumbled the gospel and you have made it into a false gospel that says it is me. But the gospel is, it's not you. It is God who raises you to life with him. That's the gospel. It's the beauty of the gospel. That is why that's the good news. That's the good news part of the gospel. The bad news is that you are dead in your sins. And the good news is, but God raised you to life. It is grace by faith through Christ Jesus as the great reformer Martin Luther would go on to the face of Catholicism and say it is not the works of anyone that they can accomplish. It is only by the work of Christ Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is not, and I have to say this every time, every time we talk about the gospel, this is not Christianity 101 or, or, Christ, or the entry point level of Christianity. No, this is something that you need to be reminding yourself of every day. Look at what Christ Jesus did for me. Look at what he did for me on the cross. Look how he raised me to life. It's what we have to do every day. It's that we gospel our hearts every day. Because I know the, the, I, I know the, the tendency of my own heart that if I'm not doing this for myself, then I begin to trust in myself. I begin to trust in others. And that only just leads me down a path that is disappointment. Now look at verse number eight and 10, and I'm gonna show you just real quickly this reality of, of not only that the moment that Christ saves you is this past reality of salvation and, and the moment that he is doing this work continuously in you is a present reality, but there's also this future reality of, of salvation for you have been saved by grace through faith. It's not a work from yourself, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Look at verse number 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. I love this because this shows us that reality of what theologians would call the sanctification process of our salvation, the perseverance of our salvation, that it is God alone who is sustaining us. It is God alone who has created us into this workmanship so it's not just us doing this work, but it is God who is sustaining us through this work. It's God who is the one who is causing us to endure. It is this, this idea that Christ is continually growing us into his image so that we are continuously being freed from the power and the death grip of sin. And that, that, is, that is the gospel. That is, that is the beauty of what the gospel is and why we celebrate every single Sunday what God has done for us and what God is continuing to do for us. And if I could summarize all of this, and what I should have probably just done is just talk about this because I could talk about this for days. If you look just one chapter before in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, I want, to, I, want you, I want to just show you just kind of the, the beauty of, the, of salvation and what it means for us and what it looks like. This is what salvation looks like. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 5. He has adopted us. Watch what he says. He predestined us for adoption to himself. As sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose 
of his counsel or the, according to the purpose of his will. Now, adoption is used throughout the New Testament as this metaphor of what God does for us when we, are be, when we have been saved. That God has redeemed, he has adopted us into his family. It, it is so, it's why I, I tie this with this verse is because you weren't born into the family of God. You, you are, yeah, now listen, there's a difference between having the image of God, the imago Dei that we've been created as image bearers. And there's a huge difference between that and being in the family of God. And in fact, what, what, what John would say is that there's a contrast and people have two fathers. Your father is either God or your father is Satan. So you are either a child of God or you are a child of Satan. I know that sounds completely harsh. It just drives the point into this. Well, just because my mama was saved, just because Meemaw was saved, just because they went to church, or just because this, that's what we call them in Georgia, Meemaw, that just, just because this person was in church, that makes me, you know, some, some faithful believer. It does not. You're not born into this. Over and over again, Romans chapter 8. We get this, this beautiful image of this is what God is rescuing us from. Being in the family of Satan, being adopted into the family of God. It is this compare contrast. It is the if-then statements. That, that if you are not in the family of God, then you are in the family of the devil. And so the reality of what salvation does is that it adopts us and brings us out of that dead family into a family of life. And this, this, would, this would have just been great play on ears for some of the, the, the Christians in, in Rome or the Christians throughout the ancient empire. Because they would know firsthand what it would mean to bring in children that weren't their own and adopt them as their own people. And so they, they got this. Now, when they use this language of adoption, and I, I just give you two minutes and I, I will be done. When they use this language of adoption, it is, there's so much legal language that they're using in this. That there was a judge who, who, who brings this baby into his family or, or, or into this family of the church. Stories of adoption. Many of you have your stories of adoption. Many of you have adopted. I, you know, it, it is like the most beautiful thing that you could ever experience in your life. And, and, I, you know, and I've witnessed the child births, and that is too just an incredible thing. Um, but, but there is something about watching firsthand the, the effects of an adoption. It's, it's when, when, when you're in a, a judge's chamber and you got all your family there. And I, and I remember that moment when we were in the judge's chamber. I don't know if, you've, if it was a judge's chamber, maybe a courthouse or whatever it was for you, but the judge's chamber is an old man as a judge. Of course, it's got to be an old man as a judge. And so he's there and all of our family. And I, and I just, you know, you know, this moment is just like embedded in my, my brain. And, and when he looks at everybody, and, you know, he looks at the grandparents and he says, and, and Ezra is now your grandson. And he looks at, you know, the cousins and Ezra is now is your cousin. And he looks at uh, my, my Jude and my Nora and he says, and Ezra is now your, your brother. And he looks at us and he says, Ezra is now your son. And let me tell you something. 
And I, you know, I get really emotional about this story because it's super emotional to me because of the hell we had to go through to get to that point. And I took that fat little baby and I ran out of that courtroom with the understanding of nothing will take this baby away from me. You know why? Because the judge's hammer went down and it was sealed and nothing could change it in that moment. And I thought about the cross of Christ and I think about these verses of, of in John chapter one, when even John uses the language of adoption, that, that the light drives out the darkness and he has adopted us into his kingdom. And I thought through all of these verses as I was really like literally like power walking out of that judge's chamber because I knew at that moment, nothing, nothing could take this baby away from me. Oh, do you understand the cost that Christ went? The, the, the cost that he went through. The, the hell, the suffering that he went through so that the great judge could say, you are my child and I will raise you up and I will adopt you into the kingdom. Do you understand the great cost that our Savior went through so that you can be called adopted sons and daughters? Do you understand that? Do you see the high cost that Christ went through just so he could say that you are mine, you are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter, It is the high cost of the cross of Christ that he went through so that the Father can call you by name and by the Spirit giving you the gift of faith to believe. And in that moment, and this is what I believe. You don't have to agree with me. I don't care. You could be wrong. At that moment, Christ seals you into his kingdom. And listen to me, nothing absolutely nothing can take that away. What, you think you're that good? You think that the sovereign God of the universe, who is the one who breathed life into you and saved you, you think you're that good that you can, like, like just say enough of this? That you can run from it? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And it is the realization that I find when I went through that adoption process with my, with my baby, at that moment I held him and I knew as I was power walking, he's mine and nothing will take that away from our family. Likewise, when Christ saves you because of the high cost that he went through to get you and when the spirit breathes life into you and gives you the faith to believe, there's absolutely nothing that would take you from our Savior's hands. This is the gospel. This is what I get so amped up about. This is why I, this is like what keeps me motivated is the gospel. If you can't, if you can't see it by now, get a, little, get a little excited about this because I understand the high cost that Christ went through to, to call me out of my sin, out of my shame, out of all of the things that I was living for, the, the life I was living for self, the way of the world, as Paul said. Do, do you see that? It is, is the delight of our faith. 
And if we walk out of here and we're not filled with more joy or we're not filled with more worship towards Christ and what he went through and, and his resurrection, then, then, then I think you've missed the whole story of the gospel. If you walk out of here and you are, you know, still in, in your shame and, and still just like, I don't think that's me or, or that's, that, I just don't agree with that. And you, you're not filled with joy. You're not filled with more adoration and more worship to Christ. And I think you've missed the whole story. It, it's my job to proclaim it. It's your job to proclaim it. But I'll leave it to the Spirit to awaken you. Let me offer up a word of prayer for us this morning. 